0: This is the story of Art Olira and of his wife Eileen Duvne Connell, soon to be his widow. Her lament Queen Artilira was composed immediately after his death in 1773. Art was a captain in the Austrian army, and by wearing his silver hilted sword in public, he seemed to enjoy baiting the local Protestant gentry in and around McCroom in County Cork. There was bad blood between Art and the local sheriff Abraham Morris. The immediate cause of his murder was that at McCroom races, Art's horse beat Morris's horse in a race, and Morris, in a fury, invoked the old penal law that any Protestant could buy the horse of a Catholic, no matter what its value, for £5. Art O'Leary refused to sell the horse, and he had to go on the run. Art, aged 26, after many weeks as an outlaw, was finally cornered by the sheriff's posse in a field near Carriganema <laughs> He fell from his horse and died instantly. We know this because Eileen's poem tells us that the brown mare made her way back to the family home, alerting Eileen to the shooting. The horse took her back to Carriganema, and in her grief she took the body of her loved one home. The poem was composed literally on the spot. Its impact at the time may be judged from the fact that it has been preserved orally for almost 200 years. Eileen, who had eloped with art four years earlier, was from the O'Connell clan at Derrynan in County Kerry. She was probably the last of the old school of poets. In her upbringing, poetry was a family tradition. Quina Artilire is, according to an Oxford don, the greatest poem written in these islands in the whole 18th century. We heard of art in our school days as the pure, heroic Irishman, unblemished and unbowed, cruelly murdered by the English. The facts are at variance with this, but politics aside, the Queen still lives on in our schools to this very day.
1: Macara de it is Queen and Magna, on law Goose, go brave hill cottaguit, flee bunda or tarringa,
2: cleave king harrogate, love yas calma,
1: roms all fagger hock,
2: fear grey hogla,
1: er not candock,
0: to the gork on
1: falerot is of with cannon fruit, to the deep sassenic. She
2: is the of this, is near God of the Hain of to. Lord of a county in Varagik, Det är lika som har I'm going to go to the house, and I'm going to go to am going to go ach the house, and I'm going and I'm going to go to the house, and i Dann soyle so viele
0: When you look at the poem and ask yourself what was it all about, you'd have to agree that there was more to it than a falling out between Art and the Sheriff of Macroom. Like many of the sons of the conquered Irish nobility, Art was forced to go abroad to find a career. He was part of a world, a Gaelic world, in serious decline, though Europe lent a helping hand, as Declan Downey, an historian at UCD, now points out.
3: The Dingle Treaty was the first formal alliance between an Irish Lord James the 11th Earl of Desmond and the Holy Roman Emperor and King of Spain Charles V and first so in return for imperial overlordship and protection Desmond um, gave his loyalty to the Emperor and that of his subjects and among the many privileges given by the Emperor to Desmond and to his followers was citizenship rights within the Holy Roman Empire. So. This was um, a very special privilege, and through this privilege, we can understand how many Irish people were able to enjoy the privileges of the Spanish Habsburg monarchy, for instance. This was commented upon by Charles II of England in the 17th century. It was also renewed and commented upon by Philip V, the first Bourbon monarch in Spain. The Irish had considerable advantages over other foreigners in the Spanish Habsburg territories owing to the Treaty of Dingle. They were given full recognition within the Spanish Habsburg monarchy as uh, co-equals. Therefore, no offices were closed to them. So, you know, these privileges were very, very important in serving the Irish abroad. They were quickly integrated into local societies with intermarriage promotion into the councils of state and of war in Spain etc and one of them becoming the Prime Minister in Portugal, de Le. So this is an indication as it were of just how, how uh, well the Irish were able to integrate and assimilate into continental society and also it's a testimony to the privileges that they enjoyed under the Treaty of Dingle.
0: Declan Downey talking with me there from a cold, wet location in the heart of Dublin. So, staying with Declan, what about the man himself? In in the circumstances, how would you explain art's behaviour?
3: Well, perhaps he he tempted fate somewhat in the way he swaggered about the place, but... Technically speaking, he was, um, and certainly legally speaking, under the terms of agreement between Austria and England at this time. We must remember that Austria and England were allies against France. And Artolera was in the Hungarian Hussars in the Austrian Imperial Services, and he was, as an officer, an Austrian officer, he was entitled to wear his uniform, he was entitled to wear his sword, he was entitled to have his horse. He was uh, an officer in an Allies' army. So as far as the English were concerned, he was entitled to wear these. But the Irish ascendancy, the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland, it's a different matter. They saw that as provocative. And in that sense, the O'Connells were warning Artillera, particularly given the neighbourhood in North Cork, that he had to be very, very careful with regards to the local ascendancy. But um, I think O'Leary wanted to prove a point, you see, and test it as far as he could.
2: Machara gdangan tu is <laughs> queen la magina on law bra arig oud grivra hia kata hit. Fri vounda cleave keen arigit. la yas halma rumsal sail vagrach. Duli dish sasnig she's is nie er wahelat, a lehen korp agla, keger lo a kailach tu, a wornin manama.
0: So, what about Eileen? What was her background? We know that she was an aunt of Daniel O'Connell, but what strikes me as extraordinary was that the O'Connells survived in Derrynan. How come?
3: They made their money through smuggling and through their service in the Continental Armies. They had a very thriving wine trade. Now, they had good relations, it must be added, with the local Protestant ascendancy in Kerry and kept them well supplied with brandy and port and sherry. Uh, at very reasonable cost so uh, it was uh, very much appreciated and many times a blind eye was turned or warnings were given etc when the excise were coming so um, the O'Connells had a very interesting relationship all round with their neighbours, Catholic and Protestant alike and they seemed to be able to fit in very well uh, in terms of what uh, the social conditions were in Ireland as well as in France
0: and in Austria where they had considerable interests That brings me to a a slightly broader question because you're familiar with and were friendly with Michael Hartnett but what upset him an awful lot was that the poet had lost his position and the house, the Gaelic household had been diminished The Gaelic poet and
3: the position of the Gaelic poet in old Irish society uh, was very prestigious and the poet wasn't just only composing poems in honour of the families, he was also the guardian of the genealogies and the histories, not only of the families but of the wider clan. And therefore much of the heritage of the locality was invested in the guardianship of the bards, the filiach, the, the, the poets, the chroniclers, etc. So the, the old poetic order, the bardic order in uh, Gaelic Ireland is representative of the culture, the literature, the identity of the people. But Michael Hartnett grew up in the area of Newcastle West, which is right in the heart of Old Desmond. And one of the things he had commented to me about was that all around us we have this wonderful range of ruins from the medieval period. And when they were built in their prime and glory and were furnished very well, they were reflective of a very vibrant and a very wealthy society in Desmond, in south-west Munster. And, you know, this image that medieval Ireland was just a collection of a few tower houses and mud cabins and, you know, people scratching their furry parts and eating roots, that's very much skewered and somewhat um, inaccurate. Because we know from the confiscations that took place in the 16th and 17th centuries. We know from the records of the English, both Tudor planters and Cromwellian planters in the 17th century, that they spent a long time removing furniture, silverware, marble works, etc., from Irish houses, friaries, castles, etc., over to England. I mean, when Galway fell in 1653 for six months there were shiploads going out of Galway taking the confiscated wealth of that city and um, you know in terms of the wealth and the patrimony we see the vestiges of that around us as Michael Hartnett used to say in these wonderful old castles like the Great Desmond Castle in uh, Newcastle West there was considerable wealth and the wealth of a very vibrant Hiberno-Norman culture that was in contact with Europe
0: when Arthur Lyra came a wooing to Derrynan, he came to a household steeped in Irish. Eileen would have shared with him the inner life of this particular Gaelic house. For those on the outside, the planters and their hangers-on, the O'Connell household had learned to live a double life. They wrote their letters in English, went to law in English, as Daniel Corkery tells it. But the poem made over her dead husband was in Irish, and it represents the secret life, the Gaelic spirit of Derrynan.
1: Tusa artolera Tusa eiling dovni connel Posig me too. Tu. To deinehuch Pashe scrife Nil me kintin eher. Tame harvec Is ta ticket a gum paris? Is ni rouseg smeen vanish? Fos. Is too much coil. Is too much coil ganach ban. Is too much lille dover loive. Ossarach to Veslaan. To an irere. Time. Misha choma. Khuntach. Is an law? Enough? A Is coma? Is an tonnit? Un sha emasked the grilter. Mar ta is a mo winter feen a kaintlam on la shall
4: ...nach will clu agus <laughs> caelorm.
1: Ta cinta. Ta bola uat.
4: Deet aga vea?
1: Bola antaile. Bola na chile. Bola na maan.
4: Níl sganra da leidart?
1: Níl ambaist. Vi goni itoge. Mishan lasan amatag amortza. Ma, ma vaan
5: Bolla
0: The waves and the lines bring us back to a time when Art and Eileen's lost world was still intact. The year was 1579 and the place was a wild inlet at the end of the Dingle Peninsula.
3: You have to understand that Elizabeth Tudor and her regime were absolutely frightened out of their wits at the thought of papal and Spanish troops arriving into Ireland with the Desmonds. James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald had brought them in. And we must remember that Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald proclaimed a holy war against the Tudor regime in Ireland It it was the first counter-reformation crusade when they arrived in July of uh, 1579 in Dingle. They unfurled the banner of the Holy Cross. They had all the trappings of a crusade against the Protestants, against Elizabeth I, etc. So bringing in foreign troops was a frightening prospect for the English because there's an old 16th-century proverb that he who would England win must with Ireland begin.
0: We travelled to Kerry to meet up with local man Danny Sheehy. We stared out at the sea, and on a headland in the foreground, we could pick out the remains of a mound that had formed the basis of the garrison of Doonanower. So who were the people, native and foreign, who dared to challenge the Tudors?
6: There were Basques, there were some Italians, there were some English people who moved out of England because of the persecution of the Catholics. And uh, they emigrated to Spain. The uh, man in charge then was uh, Admiral Ricaldi. And he brought this garrison here to this fort here. And he left them here. Then Greater Wilton came from Dublin with his army. And as you can see right across there, there's a beach. Beaches over there. And uh, at that time, there were no roads. And uh, it was mostly uh, tracks and paths and that Uh, over mountains and valleys and so on and uh, they made use as well of beaches as much as possible because uh, it was um, a good means of travelling like it was good hard ground and sand and so on you know so the the army came right across those beaches onto here and they camped outside the fort here and uh, the garrison here they had enough food and provisions to last them for 6 months or something and they had enough arms for 3,000 men But then, you see, the British Army arrived outside. Yeah, the British Navy, rather. And uh, uh, Admiral Winters was in charge of the Navy. And uh, there was something up to maybe 12 gunboats. But um, they say that uh, the Italian San Giuseppe, he was uh, the man in charge here. And he wanted to save his own skin. And I suppose he could see that he was sandwiched here between the two, between the Navy and the Army. And uh, there were also... uh, the Irish were expecting uh, the Elder Desmond to arrive with his army and uh, sandwich the British army between the fort and that army, but uh, the Elder Desmond never arrived. But uh, San Giuseppe wanted to get out of this alive. And he didn't care about the Bass, he didn't care about the Irish people who were here, he didn't care about the English people who were involved there or the priests who were here. And he made a deal with Greater Wilton. And uh, the garrison surrendered. And uh, then the whole garrison, they were all massacred. And they say that um, Walter Raleigh, that it was his squadron that uh, did the massacre. And there's an old saying here as well. And uh, my mother remembers this very well being used when she was ve- very young, as a child. Like, and uh, if you were bold, if you were cross, if you didn't go to bed or whatever, like, uh, they'd say to you, and ralgh. Here comes Raleigh. (laughs) So the fear was there all the time, you know.
3: Now it was a violent society generally, yes, there was a lot of violence, but there were scales of that violence. It was sort of expected, part of the accepted, shall we say, um, uh, robustness in Irish society at that time. But Private warfare certainly did exist, and um, this is one of the things that the Elizabethan regime in Ireland tried to put an end to, like the great rivalry between the butlers of Ormond and the Fitzgeralds of Desmond. but that was seen by the Irish as an assault upon their own privileges and their own way of life, so the whole cult of noble honour was being threatened, you know that a nobleman could defend his honour by exercising private warfare so In terms of understanding Dunanor, what is really appalling about that was that terms of surrender had been understood by those who surrendered. They had surrendered, and under the Code of Honour and the conduct of war at that time, they should have been spared. But Grey de Wilton sent in his bands, and we have records of Walter Raleigh uh, talking about how he went in with his soldiers and they put to the sword um, the various inhabitants inside without sparing anyone. Uh, a complete massacre. And that had resonances throughout Europe at the time. Grey's faith became a byword for treachery. Grey's faith. So Fides Grai became this uh, byword for treachery. Dunanor was reported throughout the continent at the time as a shocking massacre, which it was. You know, it's not just a local, it was an international significance. And the massacre there certainly had serious resonances.
6: There was an almighty massacre here. And uh, it was in the month of November 1580. And uh, uh, it has been stated that uh, there was between 600 and 800 people were massacred here, put to death. Uh, There was revenge as well involved in this massacre. Because uh, the leader of the British army was uh, uh, was greater wilton and uh, he was uh, the viceroy in dublin and uh, there was an irish chieftain in the in the wicklow mountains by the name of fiac mac O'Bryn and he ambushed uh, wilton's army the year before that down in glanmelura in in wicklow and uh, then there was the threat of spanish help coming to ireland And uh, when Greater Wilton heard of this, that uh, uh, these soldiers had arrived from Spain down here uh, at the end of the world, more or less, in a very wild, kind of inhospitable place. And uh, he marched his army all the ways from Dublin down to here. And he was out for revenge. And uh, I think that was a big part of it too, maybe, you know.
0: Not all the Irish supported uh, the campaign, basically, begun by Fitzmaurice. When he decided that his expedition was going to be a Catholic one against the forces of England and Protestantism, yeah. he didn't get the kind of support you'd expect these days. Well, he did not. And, uh, you see,
6: the local chieftain here, was uh, they were the ferreters. And uh, they didn't take any part in this uh, Don't Know It episode. None whatsoever. Like. They didn't come here to help out with the garrison or anything like that. They didn't fight uh, uh, the British army here. They just laid low. And uh, as you say, there was, uh, there was no great support here for Fitzmaurice. Uh, he came into Dingle Harbour, and he came into Dingle Town, and he got no support there from the Dingle people, because uh, they, they were um, pro-Elizabethan. And I suppose they were looking after their own welfare and all that too, you know. And it was a big trading town, where there was money involved in everything, and they, they wanted to protect that. And so he had to move on.
0: The week before Danny and I had gone to Dunanoar, there had been an article in a local paper that bones found on a nearby beach, which had been uprooted by bad weather and erosion, might have a connection with the massacre. This lent an eerie aspect to our little expedition. Apparently most of those massacred had been beheaded.
6: Well, the field here now is called Gortayara, which means the cutting field. And I suppose that's where the the, the heads were cut off. And uh, then uh, there's another field over there that's called the Gown. And then that's the field of the heads. And then there's the That's the heap of heads. And uh, uh, it, it, these names, and this place names are very important. There's a lot of history in those names. And uh, they would have been named shortly after that massacre or at that time. And uh, uh, the names would live on right down to today
0: still curious about the bones found across the bay from us, I began to put it to Danny that I'd like to venture over there. Well
6: the folklore is anywhere, that they were buried over there the Temple Barn is the name of the place which means uh, the, the white church or the white burial ground really and uh, uh, the folklore is that they were buried in there That's, uh, the, the uh, corpses that were washed in uh, f- uh, by the sea onto beaches over there and that they were buried over but then the archaeologists maintain uh, through uh, the, uh, DNA testing, maybe, or that that these uh, bones are from a, a later stage rather than from 1580. Come on, we'll take a walk yeah. over. Okay. All right.
0: Yeah, we're on the beach area. This is on barn isn't it? Yeah, this is in barn here. But what it
6: means in Irish, uh, temple born, it means uh, a deserted church or an empty church. And uh, according to Charles Smith in the History of Kerry, which was published in 1756, uh, he states that uh, when the Spaniards came to do the that uh, they, uh, they had uh, the Pope's flag, the consecrated flag from the Pope, and that they buried it here in the Temple Bourne and that they erected a church here.
0: Once the papal flag had been unfurled and foreign troops had landed, the English response was swift and hard, and another chunk of Art's world was stripped away.
3: The process began in earnest with Elizabeth's conquest in the 1580s when they put down the Desmond Rebellion. It was complete eradication of Desmond and its culture, which was hiberno norman there was Gaelic irish and then to move then from that further into the seventeenth century, Oliver Cromwell and the Cromwellian campaign was a complete total eradication. I mean the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and places like that that we've witnessed in our own times is uh, uh, comparable to what Cromwell
2: did in Ireland. <laughs> A Varus a In Queen
0: Artilera, Eileen's invective at Morris is pure hate, a case of a woman not sitting on a ditch. As she says in the poem, if she'd had a choice, she'd have taken the bullet for art. Now, according to a man I know in Kilkenny, Eileen and others of her ilk come from a long line of strong, assertive women. For example, he picks out an incident that occurred as Christian Ireland was becoming a little less pagan.
5: Apparently, at that time, Christianity was so attractive compared with what was in it before... It was a caring society. The other wasn't, apparently. It was more a young man's society where, I suppose, rough culture and violence was the thing. But still, war still went on even in Christian times among the Irish. and was quite a warlike society too. Was At least, there was some uh, record of where a bishop had uh, put down the the marker that no women were to be, in future, involved in battles. Because at one stage of women, women went out and fought with their men as well. well. They went to the battles along with their men as well, with their families. And if anything happened to the husband, they were often there to nurse them back to health or whatever. But the women took part in some of these, and some of the bigger women, I'm sure, fought well. But there was an occasion where, uh, apparently at a battle, where one woman had a hook, and she... Uh, uh, plunged the hook into another woman's breast and she pulled her around the battlefield as well with this and she mutilated the woman and uh, there was such an outcry against the brutality she had performed on the other woman and left her in such a state at the time, apparently she had survived that the local bishops were uh, in an outcry against the brutality that was performed or, or forbade women to fight any more on battlefields at that time.
0: Dushk Abbey in Greignamanna on the Carlow-Kilkenny border was built 800 years ago by Cistercian monks. The foundation of new monasteries like Dushk was an important part of the Norman organisation of their conquests and Norman lords such as William Marshall set up many such foundations endowing them richly with lands and titles. These abbeys were meant to be centres of Norman influence, so says John Joyce, a local historian. 400 years before the arrival of Italian and Spanish troops at Duna a papal flag was again to the fore. This time, an English pope was helping out an English king, putting manners on the Irish. When the Celts, who um, were on the far side of the borough in what was um, County Carlow, um, the Gales were there, the Normans were on the Kilkenny the side of the borough. And when they, after some time, as the, as the Celts saw these huge, massive walls rising up across the river from them, they came and looked in awe and wonder at these things, because they'd never really seen anything like that before. The Normans, of course, were masters of stone building, and this was something absolutely uh, new to them. The lost world of the Celtic warrior. The Norman invasion was a modest one, not exactly an ethnic cleansing. But this part of the country reeks of the past. There's massive evidence of Celtic Christian activity here. In nearby Calamary, there's a crossroads with a pub on it. Nothing else except a famous cross up the hill from it. But this place was once the site of a large monastery founded by St. Gibon Fionn halfway through the first millennium. You had men that uh,
5: were able to do metalwork and did the, the sacred vessels in gold and silver. And they were great artisans. They developed, the, the well, they were Celtic and they had Celtic culture and they did the Celtic designs on uh, the sacred vessels and on other little items of adornment as well. But apart from that then, there were a lot of learned men. They, they, they could speak fluently all the classical languages that was Latin and Greek because of the association with the Bible. And they translated the Bible and wrote the great illustrated manuscripts that were done there. They set up uh, a scriptorium, and this was fairly general in most uh, of the, the communities, but they grew to be very large communities, and in Calamary could have upwards of two, 3,000 monks in them.
0: All mm. we have, as evidence now, is oh, at the top of a yeah, boreen That's right. across
5: Yes. But it's hard cr- to believe it's all gone. Oh, I know, it's all gone because all the housing was all wattle and daub. Uh, just the ordinary bit of timber put together in a little round hut. They barely had room to lie down. But a lot of those two were married. Uh, most of the priests weren't to agree some of those didn't have the interest or they wanted they were so uh, dedicated to their religious beliefs and their religious practice and they said mass continuously in little church the only church the only building really that was built of stone was the church in these places the monks lived in little little mud wall or wattle and daub little huts
0: that's all just across the road from us lies the border with tipperary and if you strain a bit, you can just about see Kilcash Castle, where 24 years after Art's death, all of its trees were felled, called a Yenimid Fastic on Einwood. It's hardly a coincidence that these two events occurred almost simultaneously. In ancient Irish
3: culture, there's a very close identification between the Irish people and woodland. There was a cult of the trees and Druidism, for instance, that carried through into Christian Ireland, etc. And the the trees, you know, they were symbolic not only of shade and shelter, etc. and uh, sources of food and firewood, but also um, ancestry and the whole concept of an identity of a community was bound up with trees and groves, and that's reflected in place names all around the country. So... The, the trees are symbolic and uh, Kilcash is a very symbolic poem not just only of the decline of a great Irish house and the culture of that house and the, the, the patronage that house maintained in the locality but also it's, uh, it's, it's symbolic
0: of the decimation of the culture with the, with the decimation of the trees. And what of those who felled art and then felled the trees of Kilcash? The Protestant descendancy saw these things as necessities, didn't they? Brook no opposition?
3: They had their opportunities and they set about creating these opportunities uh, as soon as the ink was drying on the Treaty of Limerick. Uh, Many people think that it was William III who imposed the penal laws. It wasn't. It was the Irish Parliament which was dominated by the ascendancy. They were the ones who passed the penal legislation against the king's wishes, it might be added. People forget the the monarch had lost considerable power to Parliament. And the Irish uh, ascendancy class, they set about carving a new country for themselves out of Ireland and uh, securing their own position. So we have to understand that in terms of that struggle between two
4: aristocratic factions, as it were. Widow O'Leary, we have here your deposition, your lengthy deposition, concerning the death of your late husband, one Art O'Leary. The sufferance of the court now permits you to address us in support of the said deposition, should it please you to so proceed.
1: My husband was murdered by a soldier of the Crown, one of a group of soldiers under the command of Abraham Morris. In broad light of day, he was shot from his horse and left to die on the road. No one has been charged with his murder. There has been no inquiry into the circumstances of his murder. The whole country knows the name of the soldier.
4: And that is all you have to say, Widow O'Leary?
1: I want the murderer brought to book. Nor do I mean the soldier. I'm not stone. I'm not timber. I won't give in until Morris is made to pay.
4: Indeed, quite. Now, am I correct in stating, Widow O'Leary, that your late husband has been posted as an outlaw?
1: What is an outlaw?
4: (laughs) You tell me, Widow O'Leary...
1: Hold your head high and call the air of Ireland yours to breathe, and you're an outlaw.
4: Widow O'Leary, you are surely aware that in the hours immediately preceding his death, your late husband, Art O'Leary, entered the tavern of one Cornelius Duggan, treated himself to several brandies, and en passant boasted of his intention to murder that same day the aforementioned law officer, Abraham Morris. I trust you... What's your name? I beg your pardon?
1: What's your name?
4: (laughs) My name? Oh. Gamble George Townsend Crosby.
1: Gamble George Townsend Crosby. Will you convey this message to Abraham Morris? I, Eileen Dove, will not rest until I see him. In the grave
4: hmm. Quite. Personal entreaty number eleven for this day of the sessions, rejected by the court with recommendation that the soldiers on duty that day, in protection of the sheriff of the Macroom District, be specially commended for valor and disobeyable
0: According to the late Sean O'Tooome, Queen Artillery is one of the greatest affirmations in literature of a woman's love for a man. But for Eileen, love ended when Art died. And what of Art in his grave out there in Kilcre Friary? You'd wonder what his thoughts were before the end.
4: She came close beside me and this she did say.
2: Githias of Agus Kurt Dogno conteske Gulumnakuskatapwig. Time shake fog island viler, is near Moidic gassing, Nir a gossing near Marvika Ra lumgominic hanna.